On February 14th, 19-year-old Nicholas Cruz entered a classroom building at Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, pulled the fire alarm, and in the resulting confusion, he proceeded over the course of the next six minutes to shoot and kill 17 persons, which included 14 high school students ranging in ages from 14 to 18 years old, a geography teacher, an assistant football coach, and the school's athletic director. In addition to the dead, 16 other people were wounded or injured in the attack. Cruz used a legally purchased AR-15-style semi-automatic rifle in the slaughter, and much has been written and said in the past few weeks about the shooting, about the multiple failures of school administrators, law enforcement, and others to prevent the senseless loss of life despite the many, many warning signs that Nicholas Cruz was a tragedy waiting to happen. Much of the vitriol and finger-pointing coming out of the mainstream news media has been directed at the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution, at law-abiding Americans who own and use personal firearms responsibly, and at the National Rifle Association. The pain and anger over the Parkland shooting are completely understandable and completely appropriate. But is it really productive or appropriate to blame the Second Amendment and the NRA for what happened? We're going to talk about it here on the American Culture Podcast. Welcome to episode three of the American Culture Podcast. I am Earl B., the creator and host of this podcast, and today we're going to talk about the aftermath of the Parkland shooting. I'm so glad you have taken the time to join us. We're not going to spend much time today rehashing the details of the massacre itself. I'm not going to delve deeply into the 20 or 30 or 40 times the police came into contact with Cruz without arresting him. I'm not going to detail the numerous crimes he committed before February 14th, which should have resulted in Cruz being arrested, charged, and flagged in the system as a person to whom a gun should never have been sold. I'm not going to talk about the failures of law enforcement at every level of government to take reasonable and obvious steps to prevent or stop the tragedy. You can spend 30 seconds on Google or maybe the DuckDuckGo search engine if you're not a Google person, getting the newsy details about what happened or didn't happen, which led up to this tragedy. My purpose here today, rather than looking backwards, is to look forward and try to organize my thoughts around where we go from here. How will we as a nation respond to Parkland? I think in the immediate aftermath, of Cruz's murderous spree, most of us were sent reeling. We were just dazed by it, trying to make some sense of what happened and how we should react to it. Yet, in watching the news coverage in the wake of the event, it seemed clear that not everyone was reeling. Not everyone was dazed. There were some people or organizations that knew exactly what they thought about the tragedy, and it was clear they had a very specific agenda about how they thought the nation should respond. 
They had talking points and a strategy and many willing accomplices in the American media to push their message. I'm talking about the gun control lobby, of course. And their message, before the young victims' bodies were even cold, was, blame it on the NRA, the National Rifle Association. According to the anti-gun talking points, the NRA has big piles of money that it uses to corrupt the political process and prevent the passage of common sense reforms to keep America safe from guns. These groups grabbed survivors of the shooting who hadn't even buried their lost classmates yet and put them on TV to demonize the NRA and demand congressional or state action to limit the rights of law-abiding gun owners. It was incredibly exploitative and incredibly emotional, but it was a typical calculated response from the political left. Rahm Emanuel, who is the current mayor of Chicago and the former chief of staff to President Obama, described this political strategy perfectly. He has been quoted as saying, you never let a serious crisis go to waste. And what I mean by that is it's an opportunity to do things you think you could not do before. And what Rahm means is that if you can create or take advantage of an emotionally charged atmosphere, you can elicit an emotional response that will result in the advancement of your political agenda that you could not otherwise achieve when everyone is thinking clearly. But one has to be very wary of emotional arguments. When someone is using an emotional argument to persuade you, it usually means they know that arguments based on logic or reason do not favor their side. There's an old saying in the legal profession, if you have the law on your side, pound the law. If you have the facts on your side, pound the facts. If you don't have either the law or the facts on your side, pound the table. The wave of anti-NRA rhetoric in the past few weeks has been a lot of pounding the table. When spokespersons for the NRA step forward, and I'm looking at you, Dana Lash, to engage in a reasoned debate about gun control and the attacks on gun rights, they were met with shouting and emotion and everything but reason. But of course, attacking the NRA is just a very calculated diversion. They are an easy target because they're kind of faceless and they're involved in politics and political fundraising and campaign contributions and lobbying and because they are the only organization that will peek over the top of the foxhole in the wake of tragedies like Parkland and publicly defend the Second Amendment of the Constitution. And if you can hurt the NRA and diminish their reputation, then maybe you can render them slightly less effective as a political force and have a better chance of advancing your own left-wing political agenda. So attacking the NRA is a relatively safe tactic while also being a very cold and calculating political move. As I said, attacking the NRA is a diversion, but what is it a diversion from? Attacking the NRA saves you from having to attack your real target, which is the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, and which enshrines the right of the people to keep and bear arms as part of the supreme law of the land. Our public politics aren't yet at a place where one can be successful openly attacking the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights. That is still seen as too radical, 
and frankly treasonous. And so the left attacks the U.S. Constitution by proxy through their attacks on the NRA. The attacks on the NRA are also, of course, by proxy, attacks on all Americans who own firearms or who even support the right of others to own firearms. Liberals have repeatedly revealed themselves to be anti-liberty and anti-constitution. They are anti-free speech, anti-religion, anti-self-defense, anti-freedom of association, anti-electoral college, anti-states' rights under the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, unless, of course, the president is Donald Trump, in which case the states can apparently do anything they want with impunity. I'll probably devote a full episode of the podcast fairly soon to a review of how much of the Constitution the political left finds objectionable, because I don't think most folks are aware of how out of sync the quote-unquote progressive agenda is with traditional American ideals. But today is about the Second Amendment, which is under attack, which means my rights and your rights to bear arms and defend ourselves and our families are under attack. I've always been a supporter of the Second Amendment. I believe the founders of our country were very wise to include it in the Bill of Rights. And I have greatly respected the National Rifle Association for their ceaseless work in defending our right to bear arms, which is under siege across all levels of government from coast to coast. But I am cheap, 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 so I never joined the NRA. I only own a couple of guns, which are family heirlooms as much as anything, and I get out to shoot them very rarely. If you live in Southern California, you know how hard it is to find a place where one can legally shoot. And I figured the NRA has plenty of money and was doing fine without me. But over the past few weeks since Parkland, I realized that I can't freeload anymore. I can't sit back and rely on other people to defend my rights. I need to be part of the solution. So I'm going to join the NRA today, right now, right here on the podcast. This would probably be more compelling content as video than it will be as audio content, but I wanted you to be part of this. Prior to the show today, I pulled up the NRA website, found the membership page, and entered all my personal information and my credit card information on the forms. I picked the five-year membership for $100. It looks like that was a bit of a discount. It's also cheaper that way per year, and that means no recurring bill in the mail, at least for a while. I got to choose one of several gift options. I chose the pocket knife. And one of several NRA publications. I picked American Rifleman. And now all I need to do is click on the big green Join Now button to make it official. Fingers crossed that this is going to work okay. Hopefully my session hasn't timed out. Here we go. All right. Click. And boom. It seems to have worked perfectly. Ha. Huh. I'm now an actual member of the NRA. Outstanding. I feel very good about that, and I'm glad you were here to share that with me. The Second Amendment is not important just because it's in the Constitution. Defenders of the Second Amendment aren't suffering from a Constitution fetish, as some have charged. The amendment doesn't stand alone, devoid of the larger context. It's important because the right to bear arms is closely tied to our God-given rights to life and liberty. The Declaration of Independence says, 
We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If you have an unalienable right to life given to you by God, then you have the right to defend your life and your liberty against those who would endanger them. It is important to emphasize that in our tradition, these are God-given rights, not rights derived from other people or from governments. This historic right of self-defense is bound up with the right to defend not only oneself, but one's family and one's home. It's been long said here in America that a man's home is his castle. So it is somewhat fitting that the historic roots of the right to bear arms in our legal tradition are traced back to England, to a time when kings and noblemen lived in actual castles. Now in the court case of the District of Columbia versus Heller, which was decided by the Supreme Court in June of 2008, the United States Supreme Court reviewed the District of Columbia's very strict ban on handguns, and Justice Antonin Scalia authored the 5-4 to four majority opinion of the court. Justice Scalia traced the precursors of our Second Amendment back to what is called the English Bill of Rights, and in particular a 1689 English statute, which came to be considered by 1765 as one of the fundamental rights of Englishmen. Said Justice Scalia, quote, It has always been widely understood that the Second Amendment, like the First and Fourth Amendments, codified a pre-existing right. The very text of the Second Amendment implicitly recognizing, recognizes the pre-existence of the right and declares only that it shall not be infringed. As the court said in U.S. v. Cruikshank in 1876, this is not a right granted by the Constitution, neither is it in any manner dependent upon that instrument for its existence. The Second Amendment just declares that it shall not be infringed. Scalia further observed that in an 1803 version of Blackstone's Commentaries, one of the most authoritative treatises on the law in America at that time, the author elaborated on the Second Amendment as follows. Quote, this may be considered as the true palladium of liberty. The right to self-defense is the first law of nature. In most governments, it has been the study of rulers to confine that right within the narrowest limits possible. Wherever the right of the people to keep and bear arms is, under any color or pretext whatsoever, prohibited, liberty, if not already annihilated, is on the brink of destruction. In another case, Justice Clarence Thomas of the, of the Supreme Court recently published a dissenting opinion in which he characterized the right to bear arms as an orphaned civil right. The case there was uh, Sylvester versus Becerra. Uh, Becerra is the Attorney General of the State of California, or, or at least was, I think still is. In that case, the petitioners appealed to the Supreme Court a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals decision which had upheld California's 10-day statutory waiting period for the purchase of a firearm. The Supreme Court, it turns out, voted not to hear the appeal. That's called a denial of certiorari or a denial of cert. 
under the rules of the Supreme Court, four justices would have needed to vote in favor of hearing the appeal in order for the court to take up the case. Justice Clarence Thomas dissented from that denial of cert and wrote an excellent opinion explaining his position. For the sake of brevity, I'm going to condense a little bit the key portions of the opinion, but here is what he said. The Ninth Circuit's deviation from ordinary principles of law is unfortunate, though not surprising. Its dismissive treatment of petitioners' challenges emblematic of a larger trend. As I have previously explained, the lower courts are resisting this court's decisions in Heller, which I just quoted from, and McDonald, another important Second Amendment case. And these courts are failing to protect the Second Amendment to the same extent that they protect other constitutional rights. Our continued refusal to hear Second Amendment cases only enables this kind of defiance. We have not heard argument in a Second Amendment case for nearly eight years, and we have not clarified the standard for assessing Second Amendment claims for almost ten. If this case involved one of the court's more favored rights, I sincerely doubt we would have denied certiorari. I suspect that four members of this court would vote to review a 10-day waiting period for abortions, notwithstanding a a state's purported interest in creating a quote-unquote cooling-off period. I also suspect that four members of this court would vote to review a 10-day waiting period on the publication of racist speech, notwithstanding a state's purported interest in giving the speaker time to calm down. Similarly, four members of this court would vote to review even a 10-minute delay of a traffic stop. The court would take these cases because abortion, speech, and the Fourth Amendment are three of its favored rights. The right to keep and bear arms is apparently this court's constitutional orphan, and the lower courts seem to have gotten the message. Nearly eight years ago, this court declared that the Second Amendment is not a second-class right subject to an entirely different body of rules than the other Bill of Rights guarantees. By refusing to review decisions like the one below, we undermine that declaration. Because I still believe that the Second Amendment cannot be singled out for special and specially unfavorable treatment, I respectfully dissent from the denial of certiorari. Close quote. So thank goodness for Clarence Thomas, who, since the passing of Justice Scalia, is by far the most reliable supporter of the right to bear arms on the court. It is not a coincidence that as I record this podcast, there is a spike in agitation from the left trying to drum up support for the idea of impeaching Justice Thomas. Why, you ask? What has he done? The campaign is based on the same allegations of sexual harassment that were thoroughly explored during his confirmation hearings before the U.S. Senate back in 1991, almost 27 years ago. Never wanting a good crisis to go to waste, the left is trying to use the Harvey Weinstein hashtag MeToo controversy to take down an old nemesis. But this recent campaign against Thomas reminds us how precarious the rights of conservatives are at the court. And it highlights how fortunate we are that President Trump, whatever his other failings, seems committed to appointing solid conservatives to the federal courts at all levels. 
How desperate would our situation be if Hillary Clinton were appointing judges right now? How problematic is it going to be if Chuck Schumer becomes the majority leader in a Democrat-controlled Senate? This single issue of the federal judiciary really is, in my opinion, important enough that conservatives need to stay strong in supporting President Trump and Republican candidates for both houses of Congress, no matter how personally flawed Donald Trump may be. Gun control advocates want to amend the Constitution through judicial order, through executive orders, even through Congress. To that I say, don't be cowards. Amend the Constitution as provided for in the Constitution. Convene a constitutional convention. I have some other ideas we can consider as well. Perhaps we can abolish the income tax, or at least make it a flat rate for everyone with no exemptions. Maybe instead we'll introduce a value-added tax instead of the income tax. Maybe it's time for term limits for members of Congress. It's long past time to repeal the amendment which provides for the direct election of senators. And we need to rework the amendments on birthright citizenship for illegals. We need to shore up the freedom of religion so bakers don't have to bake cakes against their conscience or doctors and nurses don't have to provide health services they have conscientious objections to or Catholic universities and hospitals don't have to pay for birth control. We should allow individuals and groups of students at school to pray as long as such prayer does not interfere with classroom instruction. We could shore up freedom of association so that private groups, such as the Boy Scouts, for example, don't have to admit members that do not subscribe to the principles of that group. And we should make it clear in the Constitution that political parties should be able to set the rules for registering to vote in a party primary and to exclude non-members of the party from voting in their primary. They should be able to require advanced registration to vote in their party primary. And the Constitution should allow political parties to set their own rules on how candidates will be chosen to represent their party in a general election. And this is just a short list of ideas. I'm sure those of you out there have many other ideas about what could be improved in the Constitution. The point is, the left won't ever call a constitutional convention. They know they have too much to lose. They will never be part of a process they can't control. And they know there are many elements of their so-called progressive agenda that are widely unpopular with the American people and that would be overturned by a constitutional convention. And so they prefer to proceed by anti-democratic means, usually through the courts. Now let's shift away from the Constitution and the complex legal arguments about the Second Amendment. Let's look instead at the practical, real-world question, do guns work? Do guns in the hands of law-abiding citizens actually keep us safer? Or do they make the world more dangerous? And here is how we know that the gun controllers are full of crap. Why won't the lefties disarm themselves first? As a first step in keeping the public safe from the scourge of firearms, let's have the security folks guarding the homes and families of our intellectual elites disarm. Let's have the Capitol Police disarm. We'll have the police departments in Malibu and Manhattan and Martha's Vineyard disarm. Let the personal bodyguards for the Hollywood stars, for the government officials, for big corporations, put down their weapons. 
But they won't do that, will they? I have seen online recently a photograph supposedly taken at the recent Academy Awards showing all the armed security on site to protect the Hollywood stars as they stood on stage and lectured the common people about the evils of guns. I don't know if that particular online photo was real, but the point is well made. The lefties don't really want to get rid of guns. They want to get rid of your guns. They want to get rid of the guns in the hands of poor people. I say to all of them, you go first. Condoleezza Rice, whom I admire greatly, has often shared a particular story from her childhood about her father. And I'm going to quote now from the book Condi vs. Hillary, written by Dick Morris uh, and published in 2005. And it goes, The event that seared its way most powerfully into Rice's memory was the 1963 bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church. She heard the blast. Rice recalls the terror she felt as an eight-year-old. These terrible events burned into my consciousness, she remembers. And, as America shook its head in disbelief at the murder of four girls, Condi was mourning the two she knew personally, including Denise McNair, her kindergarten classmate. I remember more than anything the coffins, the small coffins, and the sense that Birmingham was not a very safe place. Armed with a shotgun, her father joined the other men of the black community in night patrols to keep the KKK out of the neighborhood. It was in the crucible of that experience that Condoleezza developed her opposition to gun control and came to value what she sees as the Second Amendment guarantee of the right to bear arms. Now, one has to go looking for them because our national media doesn't like to publicize them. But if you take the trouble to do so, you will find, almost daily, stories of would-be victims who successfully defend themselves with their own guns. Shopkeepers, single moms, taxi drivers, and old folks living alone. The most vulnerable in our society. Folks who can't afford to live in a gated community, who can't afford to build a wall around their home, folks in apartment buildings that don't have armed security at the door. As has been cynically said for years, when seconds count, the police are only minutes away. If you are one of these vulnerable people, threatened with harm, the cops will show up in time to put up the yellow crime scene tape and write up the necessary reports. And what if the police are there, able to assist, but they just decide that your life, liberty, or property aren't all that important? What if the police or the government decide that you and yours, for whatever reason, aren't worth protecting? The Parkland shooting conclusively demonstrates the folly of expecting the government to protect you. Four armed lawmen stayed outside and let school children be killed rather than placing themselves in harm's way. Those cops will have to live with the knowledge that they are cowards, but at least they are alive. And think back over just the past year or so here in America. Think about the protests, I mean riots, by the various anti-FA groups. How many times have we seen on the news video clips of the police standing by inactive as the so-called demonstrators destroyed property and attacked innocent bystanders? How much lawlessness did the police stand by and watch during the various 
Black Lives Matter protest. Do you remember the riots on Donald Trump's inauguration day where so-called protesters were smashing in storefronts and setting cars on fire? How many armed police were there to prevent just such incidents? Yet they still failed. Much has been made of the relatively small crowds at Trump's inauguration. But can you blame people? They knew. They knew that if they went to Washington, D.C. to witness what has always been hailed as the peaceful transfer of power, they might well be accosted or assaulted by leftist protesters and the police would be either unable or unwilling to do anything about it. And so folks stayed home, which is a real shame. And how effective are these so-called prohibitions, really? You've seen the bumper stickers, the ones that say, when guns are outlawed, only outlaws will have guns. And although it's really trite, really cliche to say it, it's true. More regulations or bans will not be observed by the bad guys. They'll be observed by the good guys. People who have jobs and bank accounts and families that they can't risk losing, they'll obey. But the criminals won't. And in the modern age of 3D printers, good luck grabbing all the guns when criminals can just make more at the press of a computer button. The prohibition of alcohol back in the 1920s didn't work. That failed experiment turned ordinary people into criminals and gave us notorious gangsters like Al Capone, Bonnie and Clyde, and John Dillinger. How's that federal prohibition on marijuana going? Nobody's smoking weed anymore, right? How about the prohibition on other drugs like heroin and opiates? How are that, how's that prohibition going? It's not going well, as, as you know. These attempts at prohibition didn't really accomplish anything except an explosion in black market, untaxed, unregulated activity. Why is there any reason to expect a gun gro- prohibition would go better? I want to shift gears now. Having established, I hope, that the Second Amendment's individual right to bear arms is, or should be, essentially inviolate, we need to quit demonizing the NRA. They aren't going anywhere, and the Second Amendment isn't going anywhere. To the degree that attention and anger is focused there, it's a waste of time and energy. It's unproductive. There is no actual solution to Parkland-style shootings to be found in that direction. But if we will focus our energy and our commitment on initiatives that will actually work, we can make a real difference and significantly increase public safety. What are some of these initiatives? What can really be done on a practical level to prevent future parklands? Well, to start, schools should have the option of arming teachers. It should be completely voluntary, not compulsory, but we should pay teachers a small annual bonus if they choose to become properly qualified and carry their weapon at school regularly. It might not work in every school, and it certainly won't work for every teacher. If a school has violent students who would try to disarm a teacher and hurt someone, that would of course have to be weighed. But a similar concept has worked well for airline pilots since 9-11. I tried to find out how big that program is, but exact numbers of armed federal flight deck officers is apparently classified, which makes sense. And this raises another point. We have to stop victimizing good kids and teachers by forcing them to share their schools and their classrooms with sociopaths. 
If a kid is a danger to others or is disruptive to the learning of his classmates, get them out of there. Your right to a free public education should end at the moment you are infringing on the rights of your fellow students to seek their education. Sorry, not sorry. Public school is not free daycare for bad parents. Move disruptive or dangerous kids to an alternative school. Give them a voucher they can use for an alternative educational program, maybe vocational training. But get them away from the good kids who are trying to learn and who deserve a safe environment to do so. As a second step, we have to address the mental health aspects of Parkland and similar shootings. People being treated for serious problems or taking certain problematic drugs need to be flagged in the system and prohibited from buying or possessing weapons. Why is nobody talking about this obvious problem? The Parkland shooter had been in treatment for mental health issues for a long period of time prior to the shooting. He had told his therapist about his fantasies of being a school shooter. We need to force mental health professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists, doctors, pharmacists, social workers, law enforcement, to take responsibility for the safety of the public as well as the safety of the patients under their care. The current background check system is clearly useless because it only checks for criminal records which is obviously inadequate if an individual, such as a juvenile, is never prosecuted or if records are sealed. The current background check system is a classic case of garbage in, garbage out. The effectiveness of the system is clearly correlated with the quality of the data within it. There should be put in place a system where health and public safety professionals can log in and check a box to indicate that in their professional opinion, an individual in their care or under their jurisdiction should be considered a potential danger to himself or others and should not be allowed to purchase or, in more serious cases, even possess a firearm, whether that be for a short term or permanently. I know that, at least during my term in the service, the U.S. Air Force had what was called the Personnel Reliability Program, PRP. Anyone whose mental or physical fitness to handle a weapon or exercise good judgment with a weapon, was promptly removed from access to those weapons. And in that case of the PRP program, that was nuclear weapons. In my professional experience since then, I know that law enforcement organizations have rules which suspend an officer's right to carry a weapon if they have a medical or emotional condition or are taking medication that could impair their judgment in handling a weapon. Could such a program be abused in the civilian sector? Could someone improperly lodge false allegations of unfitness? Certainly, but you can build in due process protections, including a prompt hearing to appeal placement on a list, and you can provide penalties for bad, bad faith reporting or blacklisting. It's already illegal to improperly deprive anyone of their civil rights. Another factor that is not getting enough attention is the very high percentage of mass shooters who have either no father at all in their lives or who have badly broken relationships with their fathers. Mothers and fathers and the courts and social workers need to disabuse themselves of the idea that boys don't need their fathers and that a single mom can give a boy everything he needs. Don't get me wrong. 
Single moms are heroes. They do an amazing job in very difficult circumstances. But we can't pretend any longer that we can just write fathers out of the picture without consequence. Because we are learning that there are consequences, sometimes very, very dire consequences. And finally, we need to consider the cultural values being taught our kids. How can we have a society where any person can think that mass murder is an acceptable answer to any question? That these shooters reach such a conclusion is an epic failure of our schools, of parents, of society. I cannot help but wonder, is this phenomenon a direct effect of driving religion and moral teaching out of the public schools? The hostility of the secular education system toward religion means we can't teach the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. We can't teach today Jesus' admonition to love your neighbor as yourself. We can't teach that we are all children of God, created in His image, and that we are all, therefore, brothers and sisters before God. Instead, our schools teach children that they are oppressed and helpless victims of a system dominated by race or gender inequality. Or, if you don't fit into one of the many sanctioned victim groups, for example, you're a white male, you must be a loathsome, hateful, guilty monster who oppresses others and who, frankly, deserves to die. Is it any wonder that some small percentage of kids steeped in this religion of victimology lashes out at the world around them? Is it any wonder that some percentage of the children who are taught that they are oppressive monsters ruining the world with their white privilege lashes out? We have to defeat this cult of victimhood. We have to stop dividing people, children, into ever smaller and smaller groups and setting them against one another. We can't, why can't we teach kids about our common humanity, our common values, the day-to-day struggle that is common to all of us as people. When did Martin Luther King Jr. fall out of fashion? That we should strive to judge one another by the content of our character and not by the color of our skin. Rather than having a rational conversation about things that can actually be accomplished, about solutions that can be readily agreed upon and which will actually be effective in saving lives, those on the left prefer to focus on anti-constitutional solutions which cannot be achieved and which, even if passed into law, would be ineffective. Why would the left focus on so-called solutions that won't actually solve anything? I think it's because those on the left have many, many priorities that are higher for them than protecting innocent lives. They believe in consolidated power in the hands of the government, and they don't like an independent, self-reliant citizenry that can oppose abusive government, and who can be a check on government overreach. Many on the left see the U.S. Constitution not as a miraculous human achievement, but as an obstacle to overcome on the way to their collectivist, utopian nightmare. It has been said that eternal vigilance is the price of liberty, and I urge you to remain vigilant and to fight the good fight to defend our amazing, historically unprecedented freedoms against those who seek every day to take them from us.
you enjoyed this episode of the American Culture Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about our show, we are on the web at AmericanCulturePodcast.com, all one word, no spaces. We are on Facebook at Facebook.com slash American Culture Podcast. Again, no spaces. And on Twitter at Twitter.com slash AmCulturePod, A-M-C-U-L-T-U-R-E-P-O-D. If you could give us a like or a follow or a retweet or a share on Facebook or Twitter, that would be awesome. Ours is a new podcast, and you can really make a difference and help us grow our audience by subscribing to the American Culture Podcast on the Apple Podcast app, on Stitcher, on Google Play, or on whatever platform you found us. If you really want to be a superhero, you could go the extra mile and write us a five-star review. I would be very grateful. And just this week, I created a page at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, for the podcast. We're at patreon.com slash American Culture Podcast, where you can go to become a patron of the podcast and pledge your support at levels from $1 per month on up. All content of the American Culture Podcast is copyright by Earl B. and AmericanCulturePodcast.com. The views and opinions of the host and any guests as expressed on the podcast are solely those of the speakers and not of any other person or organization. Thanks for sharing this time with me today. Let's meet back here again real soon. <music>